Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Some years ago, I drew up a list of personal angling targets I hoped to achieve before hanging up my rods. Unfortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, all but one inclusion has now been ticked off, which kind of adds extra pressure to press on and try to clear the entire list. That one missing tick belongs at the side of a fish, any fish weighing over a thousand pounds. But I have to say that I did come pretty close though. Several years ago, I fished with a chap named Miguel Gamito from the tiny island of El Hero, out on the outer fringe of the Canary Islands, who made a speciality out of bottom fishing for huge six-gill sharks in around 400 metres of water. Unfortunately, and I do use the term loosely, I could only manage a 900-pounder, shortly after which Miguel relocated to the Cape Verde Islands to concentrate on fishing for marlin, and that, I thought, was the end of that. The thousand pounder would ultimately beat me and remain unticked on my list. Or so I thought, until Irish boat skipper Luke Aston, fishing out of Carragher Holt on the Shannon Estuary, made the headlines in 2009 with a six gill shark of a thousand and fifty six pounds. I had actually heard of small six gill sharks from that area before. In fact, a dinghy fishing friend of mine, Mick Dove, had previously picked up a few to around £350 from his Warrior 175 fishing out from Kilkee. But with the weather so unpredictable for trailing a small boat to that area, and nothing much else on the six-gill scene making the news, I didn't give that Carragher Holt fish a second thought. Then, in early 2013, with my audio recording equipment already over in Ireland for an interview with Michael McVeigh on the subject of bluefin tuna, I decided that rather than having it sent straight back, I'd drop Luke Aston at Carragher Holt an email to see what he was up to currently on the six-gill scene. I have to say that what came back took me completely by surprise. And I should also say that Luke and his parties rarely, if ever, deliberately fish for the big six-gills. But he does have some heavy gear on board which from time to time goes out as a bonus rod while fishing for other things, and it's this that's picked up some truly monstrous fish. So much so that that last tick on my target list once again looks to be a real possibility, as over the course of the next 40 minutes or so, Luke will explain. But before we allow ourselves to get too carried away with the headline catches, some understanding of the geography of the area, the fishing generally, and six-gill sharks as a species would very much help in setting the scene. Well, we're fishing out of a little village called Carragaholt, which is in the mouth of the Shannon Estuary, where fish in the estuary for tope for Huss and Ray and it gives us an advantage of being able to get out in almost all types of weather and then we work outside the loop heads out on the reefs into 60, 70, 80 metres of water where we're doing more general fishing fishing for all your whitefish like ling and haddock some good whiting on the ground a lot of pollock, wrasse closer in on the back on the rocks and then we also anchor up fish for uh, big skate and for congers and we fish on the drift for shark mostly blue shark blue shark fishing is in august and september and um can be quite good yeah but it's more than just a boat it's a family business offering the complete package first of all in 2002 we built an extension onto our house here i was commercial fishing at the time and my wife started opened a small b&b and then we decided to get into the charter fishing 
and we got a chat about commissioned in 2004. First came into operation in 2005. And uh, I got a, a Lockin 366 built, which is, I would consider state-of-the-art, quite a heavy boat, probably compared to some of these modern catamarans, but well able for, maybe more able for the weather on the West Coast. Can carry people in a bit of comfort. We can get out where we want to go. It's got 660 horsepower, so it can move around quite fast. It's got a big wheelhouse. We've got a bit of comfort. And we kind of offer packages with the accommodation, fish and stay packages. And um, we like to think that we do it quite well. And having the good boat and then sort of personal house offices uh, gives us the chance of offering sort of quality fishing packages for fishermen that are interested in that sort of thing, really. Looking at Carriger Holt on the map, you have the open Atlantic, which can throw up all sorts of conditions, coupled to the shelter of the Shannon. So on the face of things, the perfect location offering the best of two worlds, which you can switch between according not only to conditions, but also the range of species your clients are looking to catch. Well, yes, we're just about 10 miles from the wide open spaces, but we do have the estuary. Occasionally, if there's a really strong southwesterly howling right up the estuary, it's quite hard to get fishing, but... During the summer season, you know, sort of May till October, which is kind of my main fishing season, it's very, very seldom that we'd ever be blown off, provided you're willing to fish at anchor in shelter for ray and huss and that sort of thing. And if you get a group in that are in for five or six days, they're normally more than happy to spend maybe a day or two days doing that sort of fishing, sometimes by choice. And also in June and July, we quite a lot of taupe in the estuary as well, so sometimes we even spend... Some very nice days in the, in the shelter in the estuary. One of the big pitfalls I've experienced when making trips over to Ireland, particularly to the West Coast, is time loss due to bad weather, and usually no backup plan B. Being Shannon-based not only offers a plan B, but one, dare I say, which is probably as good even as many other venues, plan A. Well, it, it has been an advantage since we set up the, the fact that we've never missed a day because of weather with a group that are in and are willing to fish in the estuary, you know. And yes, it is wide open spaces once we get outside, but the boat is well able for it. And if the fishermen are able for it, we can fish. We get 60 or 70%, maybe more, of fishing right out in the open spaces. And then down towards Loop Head, if the wind's in the north, we've got good shelter. And if we go around the north side of the peninsula, because it's a long, narrow peninsula sticking out into the Atlantic, if we can get round it at all, if the wind's in the south, we've got very good shelter on the other side. So... Yeah, it's an advantage to have the sheltered fishing and be able to offer fishing at all times. From chatting to you in the run-up to this interview, I know you've worked as a commercial fisherman throughout the entire area before deciding to set up the Carriger Holt Angling Centre. I believe you did tangle netting, and as such, probably have a handle on just exactly what is out there in a way that rod and line fishing doesn't always reflect. Yes, I come from a commercial fishing background, I started fishing with my father and ended up skippering a 60-foot netting boat in partnership with my father. Now, we would fish from Donegal Bay or just west of Donegal Bay there, right round to Cork Harbour, more or less. The Kinsale gas field would be kind of as far to the east as we used to go. So we used to do a lot of wreck netting down along the south coast and then tangle netting and gill netting up along the west coast. Uh, The sort of fish... Like we caught all kinds of fish. I saw hake, 25 pound weight. I remember seeing cod, 40 and 50 pound weight. Unfortunately, a lot scarcer nowadays. But the sort of exceptional catches that you would get would be big thrashers, 
big pole of eagles. I remember netting, getting pole of eagles in the net, 450, 500 pounds weight. And then big, big skates. We had skate on the boat. Well, take two men, really two strong men, hard to lift. There'd be over 300 pound weight, you know. There'd be huge fish. And they would almost always go back. And then the mixed, you get the occasional six gill, get some big turbot. If you'd caught all the fish that we'd caught on rod and line, there'd be lots of exceptional catches, but maybe because of the commercial fishing and they've been hammered, not maybe by local fishermen, more by big boats coming in from all over Europe and hitting the West Coast, it was becoming harder to get those really big fish and uh, harder to make a living out of it as well, you know. So that was why we, I thought there must be an easier way and a better way of utilising the stocks and an easier way on my body. So that's when I ended up going charter skiffering. So was this your initial introduction to the presence of the six gold sharks? Yes. I remember hauling tangle nets one day and coming on... Um, it was a skate. It was probably about a 150-pound weight skate, but it had more or less bitten in half. And the net was broken clearly at the time. Now, in hindsight, possibly a six-gill shark, or maybe... You know, I've had a brother that long-lined on the east coast of America, and he's seen great whites, and it was quite incredible to see a big skate like that just bitten in half, and then the rope of the, of the nets just cut right through. So, I don't know. There's some amazing fish out there. And yes, we did catch a few six-gills, and they used to come up in the nets, tangled up in them, and there wouldn't be an uncommon catch at all. Small six gills wouldn't be uncommon at all. One thing about six gills, which to some extent sets them apart from many other shark species, and certainly from the others in your area, is the love of or proximity to very deep water and the way they feed, which is mainly on carrion falling down from above. So from your experiences, what can you tell us regarding the habits of the species along Ireland's west coast? Well, I suppose since we started catching them, we, I have done a little bit of looking into them. And yes, they're mostly scavengers. They mostly fish, feed on dead mammals, so whales and seals and that sort of stuff that have fallen to the bottom of the sea. Most of the filming and stuff that's been done on them is where they're feeding around a big carcass of a whale or something in incredible depths. They're the most widely dispersed shark in the world and they've been caught in all parts of the world. But in this particular area... Although we're, we're not a million miles from the continental shelf, it gets deep quite quickly once you go out over 50 or 60 miles off here. Where I fish is mostly sort of less than 100 metres, and where we've been catching the six gills is in 60 metres, 65 metres of water. And my suspicion as to why they are there, well, it just happens to be a sort of reef on the end of a long L-shaped narrow strip of trawling ground that goes out sort of to the west-southwest for about 15 or 20 miles and the prevailing current is always going to the northeast here sort of up along the land and I just sometimes suspect now I have no proof of this or it's only my theory but I think that maybe with the discards and stuff that the trawlers dump over the side They've been washed up along the shore and they're coming in up along the bottom and they're coming up to this reef where we fish. I get some very good congers and some good skate and these six gills now. And um, it gets washed up and it's acting like a sort of rubby-dubby in the area if you want it. I think it's just, it's coming up along all that clean ground, sandy ground, and then hitting this reef and jamming up there and some big fish are mooching around. Thank you very much. My experiences at El Hero, as I mentioned earlier, are a fishing huge Benito baits on the bottom from a boat tied up to a permanently anchored buoy in 400 metres of water. 
a completely different situation to the one that you have out from carrying a halt. Now I know that you don't regularly deliberately set time aside solely to fish for the big six kills, but when you do, and also when you pick them up during more general fishing, what is it that gets the results in your area? Yes, when we first started catching them it was accidental and we were fishing skate tackle, so fairly basic skate tackle, and we were getting hooked up quite regular and to big heavy fish and losing them. And in hindsight, maybe a lot more regular than we even thought. You know, we'd come up with the, f- with the line all damaged and everything. Oh, caught in the bottom or wonder what that was. But you never really knew. And uh, I remember one time, about a year before we caught the first one, I was fishing with a group here from that area for congers and skate, as I said. And one of them had a wire trace down for congers. Normally we'd use mono. And um, he got a good fish on for about 10, 15 minutes and then it was bitten off. And we put down a slightly heavier piece of wire, and that was bitten off. And we hooked up about three or four times. And we never got much off the bottom, I'd say. And like that was, we, at the time, we were kind of talking about it, but we didn't really know what it was. We had no idea. And it wasn't until, um, actually, the first big six gill that we got to the surface was a skate-type rig with a 12 or 14 hook. And the shank of the hook was across the teeth, so it was just lucky. And a heavy 300-pound mono. And... Um, we got it to the surface, saw what it was, and I suppose after that we kind of I've thought a little bit more about the tackle. Now I would use um, 49 strand wire, about 350 pound breaking strain, at a biting trace of just 18 inches long onto a good strong 12 or 14 no hook, and then maybe a meter and a half of 600 pound mono, and then another four or five meters of 150 to 200 pound mono that'd be the trace I use now I suppose the next logical question has to be frequency and potential size at El Hero you could expect a couple of takes a day with fish occasionally going as big as 1500 pounds how then does that compare to a deliberate attempt where you encounter them uh, Phil I don't know last year was the first year we really you know, I suppose we kind of used to fish this mark and then more and more you'd kind of be thinking, well, six kill around, maybe we'll get a six kill. But last year was the first year where we had groups out. OK, they were overfishing, general fishing, but we'd kind of go and do this for a day if the conditions were right. And it got to the stage in the second half of last year, only three or four times we actually deliberately went for them and tried it. But we hooked up every time. We didn't always get them to the boat, but we hooked up every time um, within an hour and a half or two hours that would be the sort of fishing that's there now sounds very similar actually to El Hero there too it would usually take an hour or so to get the first fish interested and you could quite realistically bank on hooking up a couple or even more during a full day with thousand pound plus fish not being out of the question though as I've said the best that I could manage was around the 900 pound mark as you said earlier Six skills are very widespread and potentially large growing fish found in all parts of the world. So is it then only a matter of time before something truly huge is hooked up by one of your clients? Or maybe it has been already. The one we landed was £1,056. And I've definitely seen bigger fish than that to the boat since then. So you're never going to know the weight. <laughs> the first time I caught one, we took one to the surface the year before we landed one. I'd estimated its weight at three to four hundred pounds, and uh, 
that it was much the same size as the one we brought ashore. And the one we brought ashore, even, I hadn't estimated anything like the way it turned out to be. And I've definitely seen bigger fish since. So estimating in the water is a very hard thing to do. But yes, there are some big fish around there. One point worth making here is that while we're talking of fish bigger than most people will ever see in a lifetime, anglers should not be put off by that fact. Six gills are not hard-fighting fish in the way that marlin or tuna can be. Deadweight sluggers is probably the best description of the fighting capabilities, wouldn't you say? They're not hard-fighting. They do take good technique to get... I've seen people... I saw one fella last year fight one for three hours, and he didn't get it anywhere near the surface... And he, his hands were in absolute bits. I know he was in agony for, well, he was sore for a week afterwards. But if you have the proper technique, a good harness, and are reasonably fit, you can normally better them in an hour and a half, that sort of time weight. My first impression was looking at the biggest dogfish in the world, while Dave Devine, who also caught a big one, described the fight as like winding in a wiggly bin with its lid open through a depth equivalent to three Blackpool towers stacked on top of each other. Well, we, I have had some fairly serious runs of sort of 30 or 40 yards. Nothing like a marlin where you're whistling it in and whistling it out. But uh, a bit more like being stuck to uh, an ex- freight train. <laughs> you ain't turning it unless you really, really want to. What surprised me most was when the fish was at the surface, the ease with which you could hold and guide it around on the leader. There was absolutely no attempt whatsoever either to get away or to head back down. Yeah, we've had them coming up to the surface. Uh, yeah, you'd hold it by hand. I'm not a lightweight and I'm fairly fit and I'd be under pressure at times to hold it. And I've had fish that have broken trim tabs and stuff like that in the back of the boat, which is in a big, heavy trim tabs. So they do bang and wallop off the boat. But no, they're not, you know, you, you can hold them, certainly. But they're after putting in an hour and a half of a fight, don't forget. So they're fairly tired themselves, you know. One other point I should make here is that several of the El Hero fish had previously been tagged. So while they are tired at the surface, the journey up from the depths appears not to be having any detrimental effect. No, it doesn't seem to have. Um, I suppose like all dogfish, they don't really have a proper swim bladder. That's why they're able to survive it, you know. It's not like they're whitefish that have a swim bladder that the main reason that the pressure changes affect whitefish so much, I suppose. Now obviously, to quarter weight as precise as 1,056 pounds, that first grand he brought ashore must have been put onto the scales. So what's the story behind that particular fish? The person who caught it, a Mr Joe Waldus, he was a very fine man from uh, Switzerland. He was booked in with two friends for a week's fishing here. And when he arrived in the house, I remember the night before, or a couple of days beforehand, I had a big picture put up of the shark that I mentioned that we caught the year before, and I'd estimated it at £300, and I had some few different action shots of it on the surface before we let it go. And Joe saw this and said to me, um, why did you let it go? And I said, ah, Joe, it's nice to... Why not let it go? And he said, well, what about all the fish it kills and everything it eats? And you can eat it anyway. And he said, if I catch one, I'm bringing it in. I said, eh, well, Joe, that's unlikely anyway, but you never know. But anyway, about a couple of days later, we were on the mark, and we got stuck into one, and it was actually the day after Joe's 70th birthday, and he he celebrated his 70th birthday while he was here, and very fit. He fought that fish to the surface in probably one of the quickest ones we got to the surface, just over an hour, something like that, around the hour mark, anyway. And as we saw it below the boat, 
what we were thinking it was possibly a six gill at this stage and when we could see it under the boat it was amazing to see a big big fish it was slightly bigger than the one we'd had the year before but three and a half meters long is what we reckoned it was 3.91 meters long that's what it turned out to be so once it came in and we got it to the surface there was no question that we were taking it in in order to claim a, a record you had to weigh it on the land and I managed to lasso it with a big heavy piece of rope around the tail and we strapped it up to the side of the boat and we um, slowly towed it ashore. And while we were doing that, once I realised we were bringing it in, I said, contact a few people that might be interested. So I rang some people I knew in UCC and GMIT, which are a university in Cork and a technical college in Galway. And they were all mad keen to get their hands on a fresh specimen. So they said they'd be very interested if I could keep it for a post-mortem for the following day. So anyway, I said that was fine, and we, we got it in. It took us probably longer to tow it in from the fishing grounds than it did to get it to the surface, but we got it in, and uh, the word had spread in the village that this fish was coming in, and there was about 30 or 40 people on the pier waiting when we came in. And uh, I knew that we couldn't manhandle it up the pier, so I had a local fish merchant had a forklift on the pier, and so we pulled it up the pier with a forklift and we said we'd take it up to the local scales. This fish market had a scale which I knew weighed up to £500 actually is what he, he reckoned it was. And I said, oh, well, this fish will definitely be under that. I'd seen big fish often, but you never really weigh them. And until you weigh them, it's very hard to, to estimate them properly. So anyway, we lifted it up and took it up to his yard and put it on his scales and it maxed out straight away. <laughs> So I said, oh God, what's what's the story here? So the next option was a quarry with the certified scales just about three or four miles away. So what I actually did is take this shark up to a quarry weighbridge and it only weighed to the closest 10 kilos. So it it worked out at 480 kilos, which is what it weighed. So that converts to 1,056 pounds. Waded on the um, on that weighbridge, brought it back down to the chill in the in the fish merchant's yard. Actually, a couple of the local school kids at this stage, the, the teachers have brought all the school kids down. So there's probably about 150 people down looking at this fish at this stage. So we we took a few photographs of it and we put it into the chill. And I was actually going out fishing the next day again with Joe again, and um, these scientists all came down. One fella flew in from the Middle East. And uh, they'd only done post-mortems, 90% of the post-mortems they'd ever done before were on immature fish. And uh, most of them quite, you know, fish that were a couple of days old have been washed up or being bycatched in trawlers and thrown in a corner of a deck for a few days. So they were delighted to get a fish in such good condition. They said they learnt a lot about it. Although it's quite a widespread shark, they don't really know much about it because... As I said, they're, they're not that often that they actually get one ashore because they're so big and hard to handle. And uh, even since then, I've had requests from scientists to bring in another one, but we haven't actually brought in another one since. So for someone like me then, who would be prepared to stick at it and put in the time, what's your true six-kill potential for a successful outcome and potential for maximum size? Well, first of all, you don't need too many people fishing on the boat. So ideally two or three baits. So you want a small group, that'd be the first condition of putting in time. And then the next thing was, I have had a far better success rate in hooking up to them if there's not too much of a swell. 
so that the boat isn't up, raising up so you can keep the bait tight on the bottom and not moving around too much. But I don't know, this year, obviously we haven't tried them again yet, but by the end of last year, any time I had a group like that that were willing to try with a small number of baits and, and got the right weather, we had a hookup. What would be your chances if you came over? Well, if it was the end of last year, I'd be fairly confident if you came and put a few days in. This year, maybe they won't be there, maybe they will. But they've been there now for... We had the first one in um, 2008. We had one or two in 2009. And we had probably... I know we had three or four to the surface last year. We had probably seven or eight hookups. Mostly in the second half of the year. But um, by the end of last year, if I had customers coming over, I'd been quite confident offering them a chance to catch one. I mentioned earlier the friend who trailed his own boat across to Kilkee and was lucky enough with the weather to get out a short distance where he fished for common skate in maybe 200 feet of water and ended up bringing several six-gills to the side of the boat for release. So they do seem to be plentiful in the outer Shannon area. Well, yes. Um, and I remember because there was a bit of a rumpus about the time we brought one in, I was kind of very aware of what was happening around at the time when I was talking to a couple of boats that I knew that were tangling in in the area. And in the Ten days around the time that we caught that one, I know there was about ten or twelve six-gill shark. Now, maybe none of them as big as the one we caught that were taken in by tangle netters and just dumped dead back over the side again in that week or ten days around the time we caught that. So, like, because it was kind of in the news, it made the news all over the place and it was in the national media here and uh, lads were ringing me and telling me what they were catching, you know, the commercial men. But there seemed to be, there were certainly between 10 and 15 of them caught in that week or 10 days around that time. So, they, yes, they must be very plentiful at times. And since that officially weighed 1,000 pound plus specimen, I believe you've released at least three others of similar proportions. Well, there's a little bit of video there. I forgot my Facebook page. I should probably attach it to my website. But, yeah, we've had them up. See, you already estimate their length. So the, the one we caught that we weighed that was over 1,000 pound was 3.9 metres. And you can only measure them at the surface. What we would do is we would drag them up along the side of the boat and stretch a tape over them, you know? So how accurate is that? But we've had them up to 4.5 metres long. So what weight were they? It depends on everything else. But you would be guessing that they're twelve or 1,300 pounds at least, you know? Yeah, a small increase in length, coupled to a proportionate increase in girth, can equate to a huge increase in weight. The liver of the one we brought in, because they did the post-mortem and they weighed everything, the previous record was 100 and... I can't remember exactly what it was. 160 or 170 pound weight. And the liver of the one that we brought in was heavier than that. It filled four fish boxes, the liver, out of the one we brought in. So yes, they can be fatter and every little couple of inches longer and an inch extra in circumference can make an awful difference at that size, you know? So you've got the big shark, skate and a whole host of other stuff outside for the finer weather days, plus to open rays inside for when it blows up. But given a free choice, what's your particular preference? And what would most of your customers be looking to try for? A lot of the fishermen that come from the continent come here because of variety as much as anything. You know, we would have, in a week's fishing, 30, 35 species. My favourite fishing probably is spinning out of 70 or 80 metres with... Uh, leadheads, shads, that sort of stuff, moving them quite quickly through the water and getting hammered with light spinning rods. It's just great fun. 
and we have had over 800 kilos of fish in the day fishing like that uh, we put back what we can you know anything that's not blown we'd put back and sometimes that'd be an exception when we have a group that we're really trying for something to see what sort of weight we can estimate but we'll be weighing each fish as it comes into the boat and accumulating the weight and it's quite incredible when you really start hitting them the other really good fun fish is uh blonde wrasse quite knacky to catch them because they live in little nests in the rocks quite close to the bottom of the cliffs so you have to be very quick to get them if you use a light rod and light tackle you can get a great scrap off them but you have to get them away from the bottom very very quick that's probably two of the most sporty fish in the area then we've had whiting i've had whiting over four pound weight i've had the heaviest whiting caught in ireland a few times one year i had it personally myself it was nearly five pound weight so for a whiting they were quite exceptional fish We've had John Dory. We've had quite a few specimen John Dory. And we've had one John Dory that I think is still the Dutch record. Uh, the Dutch have a system where they have a record for the heaviest fish caught by one of their citizens anywhere in the world in any species. And then their home water record. But their overseas record for John Dory was a fish that was caught in our boat. So, yeah, we've had... You know, you don't get those huge Greek big pollock that you get on the English Channel. But you get a lot of them, and a lot of them are around the 8, 9, 10-pound weights and... Very sporting fish. Very good fish indeed. Now I'm actually also interested in the prospects for common skate, both as a big fish in its own right and as a means of picking up a few potential six skills. So with Ireland's very progressive conservation record, do you also tag them before release? Yes, we do tag and release. Uh, we tag and release most of the, the shark types, bull hus, tope, blue shark, um, and <laughs> They've been re-caught as far away as the Cape Verde Islands, the blue shark, which is quite incredible, really. But um, the skate fishing, to be honest, since we started catching these six gills, if we're going anchoring up, the conditions need to be much the same, really, when you're in deep water. And if you've got a big Atlantic swell, it cuts right down the success rate. And to be honest, most of the skate that we've caught in the last few years have been while we're fishing for conger, probably, with the wire trace or a heavy mono trace. And they've just been a bycatch. And really, if we if I go big fish fishing now, it's more likely to be trying for the six gills. But um, the tactics are very saying: get a good bait on this bottom and leave it there and see what happens, isn't it? I'm not sure when it was exactly, probably around the mid-1980s, but myself and Brian Douglas trailed my small boat over to Feenet to team up with Kevin Lanane to film a Central Fisheries Board video and ended up boating some white skate or bottlenose rays well in excess of £100. Have you ever seen any of those fish on your patch? I have not caught one on rod and line. We used to catch them quite regular when we were commercial fishing. They're, they're a lot pointier nose, they're less rough fish, and they're actually, they, they had a commercial value as well, you know. But they were there, yes. The real skate area where I used to catch a lot of the skate would be a little bit further out, sort of 20 miles off the land even more and to be honest with the six skill there and with everything else that's going in locally i haven't really moved out on especially onto that ground and, and really had given it a good go on only once or twice mainly because it's just you lose so much time getting out there and you can catch so much more variety in on the reefs or in around the reefs instead of going out into the middle of the sort of clean ground as we'd call it you know so the chap I fish with at El Hero tied up to a permanently anchored boy over very deep water. 
but unfortunately he's now gone, taking away the only possibility, other than for yourself of course, of deliberately catching £1,000 plus sharks in European waters. Should that then not signal the potential to develop and promote this side of the business into a more lucrative growth area? Well, yes, I suppose it is. It is something else we offer. I have yet to get a customer that... No, that's not true. I've had one day charter of a group of fishermen that fish with me quite regular doing different things that wanted to try for the sixth gill for the day, and we actually got them a sixth gill. Now, they didn't get them to the surface. He was the fellow that fought it for three hours. He was very certain about the way he wanted to do it, and he wasn't for changing his ways. But uh, he just didn't fish heavy enough, as simple as that. The rod needs to be fairly stiff, and you need a fairly good reel, and you need a good harness. But um, to build a business in it, yes, I'm wide open to people that want to come and try it. How you actually build a business just on it, I'm not sure, other than get it out there that they're there. And I think a lot of people do know that they're there now. But um, you have to get the customers that are willing to come along and charter the boat for a few days and take their chances with the weather. And if they come along, I'll gladly try um, six kill with them as much as possible. And if that was the case, would they need to bring their own tackle? And what would be the best timing for such an attempt? Well, I've had them all through my season. I had them in April and I've had them in October and every month in between. The fishing is more fun, shall we say, once you get into July, August, September. Probably the three top months here. But then again, I'm also busy at that time, so you have to book well in advance. So they're taking their chances with the weather. But um, I have heavy gear on the boat. We have 50 and 80 pound class rods on the boat. What I've been using is an 80-pound pen millennium rod and a graphlight two-speed reel and 80-pound braid. That's what I've been getting them on and then the, the traces I described before. And in the future? Well, I suppose the thoughts for the future is, from a commercial fishing background, I would love to see um, sports fishing given a lot more of a place in the sort of fish planning, if you understand me, where you have a lot less pressure put on areas that are good sports fishing by the commercial fleet. I think that makes a lot of sense in lots of ways. It would give fish stocks a chance to improve and it would also, I think the return on anglefish is um, probably higher than the commercial catches. I I think it's a win-win situation in a way if we could have a lot more exclusion zones that were just for, for game fishing. I'd like to see that happen. I'm not sure how soon it's going to happen in the EU. Other than that, I still convinced Carrigholds is a very good place. It's just that bit further south on the west coast that the weather is a little bit softer than than further north. And it's right into the Atlantic. It's right on the edge of that continental shelf. It's got the Gulf Stream, closest point to Gulf Stream to Western Europe. And uh, the only one thing we miss here is the wreck fishing, but we do great big pinnacles out here, sort of 10 or 15 metres high, with lots of fish hiding around them. And uh, it's not that far now, modern roads. We've got Dublin Airport and Shannon Airport. And uh, my customers can be from most parts of England to my door. They can leave work in the evening and be in my bed and breakfast that night and out fishing the next day. And uh, I think it's an awful pity in a way that we don't really appreciate how good the fishing is that we have in Europe. Sometimes people travel all over the world. And I've travelled. I've fished in Africa and fished in... Australia, and I still haven't caught anything like the fish I've caught out of the west coast of Ireland. Legislation is now starting to appear, 
both at European as well as at national level, to conserve certain species, including common skate and some sharks, in the main driven by Scottish anglers, though it has to be said that Ireland has always been at the forefront of this particular battle, skate and bass perhaps being the two most obvious examples. Well, yes, one arm of government was. We, we were, I think, the longest-running tagging programme outside of the States. Game fishing or shark and rays have been tagged in Ireland now for well over 30 years, and the records are there. Bass are a protected species. You're not allowed to commercially fish them in Ireland. Spur dog are now protected. A lot of the skates are protected. On the other hand, because the fishing is so good, and the tradition is really Spanish and French fishermen off the West Coast, and it's an EU waters, which is a crazy setup for inshore waters anyway, it's a very hard thing to actually get proper conservation areas going without the full cooperation of the EU and... Uh, There's no point talking about Irish or England, really. It's an EU-wide thing, unless you can put pressure on from the local government, but um, I don't know how close it is. I get involved in certain committees, and it breaks my heart sometimes to see how uh, different people see only their own thing, and you probably understand what I mean by that. I understand exactly what you mean. Here in the UK, I sit on the Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority and I've also been involved up in Scotland with a number of shark and skate tagging events operated by the Scottish Sea Angling Conservation Network. That said, I still think that the Irish had the knack not only of recognising protection requirements before everyone else, but more importantly, of acting to do something about them, with the Scots only a very close second. We Brits seemingly do nothing at all. Well, I'm glad somebody else thinks that. <laughs> we do have a very good marine institute here. I know commercial fishermen get a bad press, but most fishermen that I know understand that if they catch all the fish today, there's no fish tomorrow. But I think that the single biggest reason that more conservation areas don't happen is because people feel they don't have local ownership of it. And unless people feel that it, if they stop fishing an area to improve stocks in an area, they don't want to think that somebody else is going to come and fish them illegally. And that's always the trouble with conservation areas, is getting everybody, or the stakeholder, as they say, to buy into it. And um, even in Ireland, we're still a long way from getting it organised the way it could be organised. But a damn sight closer to it than England. Well, maybe. Which has to be a very good thing from your point of view. Well, I am not that aware of what I do know they have closed conservation areas in England, and I do know that around things like uh, offshore wind farms... And things like that, where they're closed zones that work as conservation areas. And there's lots of things that happen under people's noses, and they always think far away grass is greener. So, Funnily enough, the last IFCA meeting I was at had the National Grid in attendance, trying to convince us of the ecological value of cabling electricity from a new nuclear power station across Morecambe Bay, stating that as it would be converted from alternating current to direct current, then back again later after passing under the sea, it would not have any of the harmful effects to fish such as sharks and rays by producing electromagnetic fields in the way that wind farm energy coming ashore apparently has. Yeah, I can understand that. I would agree. Probably shark and rays are, are very sensitive to magnetic currents, they seem to be. But um, I do hear from people saying that stocks of whitefish are increasing a lot around these places where there's closed areas because of the wind farms. And you know, sharks tend to come where there is feet. So I wouldn't look at it all bad. Uh, I, I don't know. Who knows the answers to these sort of things? In truth, nobody knows, because the research is still to be done, and therein lies the main problem. 
my own personal view, it's going to be species dependent and will also include certain non-cartilaginous species such as eels and salmon, which use the Earth's magnetic lines as an aid to navigation. Yes, yes, I'd agree. The, the, there has to be lots of research. I have a, a brother-in-law who's a marine biologist and he says the more research they do into fish, the more they realise how little they know. But uh, yes, there's lots of opportunities out there, but uh, the number one thing is just to cope with the overfishing that goes on and to understand the potential that there is to fishing beyond just catching them commercially and landing them as food, you know. Well, it's often said that a fish is worth 50 times more if people are prepared to catch and release it than when it's laid out on a fishmonger's slab. Getting back now to the six gold sharks, as I've said, catching a fish of over a thousand pounds is still the one missing tick from my fishing wish list. And if I'm honest, I didn't think I would ever get this close to completing it. Then when I couldn't beat nine hundred pounds at El Hero before Miguel up sticks to Cape Verde, in my head at least, I'd written completing the entire project off. So now perhaps it's time for a rethink. My thanks then to Luke Aston for putting that prospect back onto my agenda. Mm-hmm.